0: Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying this show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive new episodes a week earlier. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guests today are Wayne Hu and Josh Constantine from SignalFire. Signal Fire is the first venture capital firm built from the ground up as a technology company. Some of their investments include Clubhouse, Class Dojo, and Ro. In this episode, we discuss the creator economy, how they're thinking about investing in it, what the future could look like, which Web2 platform is best positioned for Web3, the current state of NFTs, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Wayne and Josh. Wayne and Josh, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you both? Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. I really appreciate both of you taking the time. So I know one of like the area or at least one of like the hot topics right now is the metaverse. As VCs, when you kind of pull back the onion on, you know, this idea of presence and synchronous communication or 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 this kind of multiplayer experience, how do you think about opportunities that you might be investing at or or looking at? that kind of serves of those purposes
1: On one hand, I think you really have to realize that it's still very early for the metaverse. It's not a place where there's a ton of existing customers, and so especially businesses that require huge, huge scale of users immediately, those are going to be tough bets, I think, for us. Uh, And Similarly, I think some of the content plays right now when it's really unclear what the infrastructure will look like or what exactly users want out of everything uh, would also be difficult. That's why we typically at SignalFire stick to infrastructure investments, which can be kind of future-proof. Even if consumer sentiments change and the use cases change, you'll still need that infrastructure and you're not kind of betting on a business that requires this massive scale when there could still be great businesses to be built at smaller scale with a higher level of um, uh, monetization per user. But you know things like big ad networks where you're going to have to see, see the kind of depth of engagement you see on traditional web two social, but in the metaverse, I think it's going to be a long time until you can really be sure about those kind of companies.
2: Yeah, I fully agree with what Josh said. I think long term, I'm I continue to be interested in underserved communities with deep affinity and very specific needs that could, um, you know, that could be unlocked with a purpose built platform, you know, it, within the metaverse. I think of um, some metaverse s- metaverse light type experiences today, like a class dojo, where inherently you've got a huge number of people who need to stay connected in, in the classroom right? You've got teachers who uh, need a way to manage their classrooms, which is the number one pain point for anything, say, K through nine. And the way of managing that by writing kids' names on chalkboards is super antiquated and you know can be digitized through vir- virtual avatars. And then you've got parents who only get a parent-teacher conference every six months or so, uh, and they wonder what's going on in the classroom. So by digitizing the classroom, now you've got daily engagement suddenly from parents, teachers, and students, with students as sort of the central node. Uh, the, the other exciting thing about something, you know, Translating something like that into a metaverse type experience is um, it's actually anchored to a real life network that makes it safe. You know, when, I think, um, you know, as, as you've probably seen, you've read early metaverse experiences in, in Roblox and uh, VR chat and so forth have exposed kids to, to form of harassment every in a form of forms of abuse every seven minutes. Right. And I think the anonymity of it is um, is a, a critical enabler uh, of that kind of behavior. And I also think of, you know, uh, of experiences like a green park, which is building a metaverse-type world for rabid sports fans, which is often a different social network than who our best friends are. And the way they engage with them is different. right? If you're talking about trash-talking, making predictions about games and which players or teams are going to crush the other one. And you know, I think there's, there's a lot to be done to cater to that specific kind of engagement.
0: Do you see, with these different worlds and different universes, do you see it being open um, where you can actually go and um, talking, you know, of course, down the line in a few years since it is very early. Um, or do you think that, that it be more closed ecosystems?
1: I think you're going to have to see this be more open. And I think that's part of what the real metaverse is, and the hope of the industry is that it's not dominated by some giant player like Facebook, who's going to get to write the rules of everything. And instead, the idea that it's more less of you know one giant you know monolithic country, and more a you know an amalgamation of smaller states where you can move in between these different experiences. I think that's what people are hoping to see out of the metaverse, and I think that really st- speaks to some of the core principles of the metaverse, which I think of as being sovereign ownership, the idea that you actually own things that you buy or control inside the metaverse. They don't actually belong to the developers. In most video games, like if you earn an item or you, you, know, you, you get a car or a weapon, the developer actually owns that. It's not yours. You can't take it with you and it's not portable. And so the idea of sovereign ownership and portability to me are crucial to the metaverse. And that only makes sense if there's actually other places you can bring stuff and they're interoperable. That said, I think some functional utility items, for instance, like a weapon in a video game, it's going to be hard for you to understand how do you take that from one game to the other. Each developer would have to write rules for how it actually interacted in their world. But what I do think you're going to see is being highly portable and one of the first big business opportunities for the metaverse is around clothing and self-expression. People are going to want to be able to maintain some semblance of a, of a, you know, a core identity across different places. Sure, there will be prismatic identities, certain situations and metaverses where you want to be totally different than your normal self. But oftentimes you're going to, want to, you're going to want to be recognized in between these different places. You're going to want to feel like yourself, even when you're in these different worlds. And so I think companies that can sell you interoperable clothing and accessories that make you feel like yourself and you can use in every different metaverse is going to be one of the first big businesses in the space.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Today, the way, given that you have these sort of silos, the experience would be the equivalent of you being told what clothes you can wear for when you go to the mall or the park and only being able to wear them on every Tuesday through Thursday kind of thing. And so, you know, I think it's, it'll be, it'll be critical and also really valuable to build sort of the, um, the Amazon style wardrobe, right. That, uh, that lets you basically port, you know, whatever, whatever identity you want to take across these various experiences. And the interesting thing about that kind of experience is you don't, when you're building a digital supply chain, the economics of that are fundamentally different. It's all variable margin.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I, I, I appreciate that. It also seems like it almost takes partnerships with, with these platforms. It could take it to maybe a whole new level in terms of how they actually need to interact with You know, on the opposite end, what we're seeing with like Web two, for example, when they, you know, social media. I mean, at least on the social side, they operate pretty independently. So you're actually, so you might actually see actually a lot more kind of collaboration and partnerships throughout these networks. There's a lot of chatter about the creator economy. How do you think about the creator economy, and maybe what is the promise in your mind of the creator economy
1: for the future? I mean, to me, the creator economy is about. Decoupling uh, fame from what we think of as celebrity. If you think of inf- influencers and the creators as being this modern incarnation of the celebrity, where in the old school world where you had only broadcast media, the only way that big you know big names could interact with their audience was through mediated channels, through a movie that they were starring in, or maybe through like a press interview. They didn't have a lot of direct connection with their audience, and because of that, they had to basically be one size fits none. They had to appeal to the, the the lowest common denominator of all consumers and so you've got these kind of big cookie cutter things that lots of people liked but maybe if not so many people truly loved and I think the, the promise of the creator economy is shifting instead to this world where you're in these uh, uh, these back and forth mediums that act, where you can actually have a dialogue with your fans and instead of being saying like oh I only interact with my fans through these mediated channels, I communicate with them directly, and I have a direct feedback loop between what they want and what I make. And that also means that you feel closer to that creator where you they're actually somewhat relatable. Like they don't feel like this movie star that you could never be like, but instead somewhat similar to who you are, and that maybe you know if things went right, you could be in their shoes as well. And that plus their willingness to dive deeper into specific subcultures. Instead of making content that appeals to everyone, they're okay excluding a lot of people, and instead making something that that a few people truly love it deals with a subculture or topic or niche interest that you really love and so when they make that content it feels almost esoteric like you're in on an inside joke and I think that depth of, of affinity where you really feel like they're speaking to your personality not to everyone but to you really drives that sense of influence over purpo- uh, purchasing decisions and that's how I think you're going to see the, the creator economy really earn money is because when people feel like they're close to these creators like these creators really speak to them like they're listening to them that they can see them. They want to buy what those creators tell them to.
2: Yeah, 100% agreed and if you want to see this phenomenon in the flesh, you just have to go to VidCon and talk to people there. The um the level of of fandom is on a completely different plane. It's um you know, if you're watching a creator, you know, do a, a vlog video every single day, the relationship is much more akin to like a family member or best friend, rather than some unattainable celebrity that you might only see on the big screen once per year. And so, you know, to me, the promise of the creator economy is, it means, it's, it's a couple things. One is, uh, it's a world with no gatekeepers, where you can find your tribe wherever they are around the world, where, as Josh mentioned previously, content is being controlled just by a handful of big studios in Hollywood. And you'd have, you know, YouTubers, even as big as PewDiePie, would have been laughed out of some media executive suites. And all these interests, which are way too small to cater to by Hollywood, if you're suffering from some rare form of cancer, right, you now have a community online led by creators. So that's, that's the first piece. The second is the ability to attach truly authentic meaning to your work, right? The most successful creators are just doing what they love and super passionate about. And it's unbelievable that they can now start to get paid for that.
0: Which web to social media platform do you think is in best position in order to capture maybe part of the creator economy i know there's like a, like they have maybe phase one was like you know creator funds and kind of giving creators maybe some ownership in that capacity or just being able to earn from their work a little bit better a lot of work to be done there but when you think about the current platforms and kind of this iteration of what's kind of what's now here and, and coming in the future and in in Web3, what do you think in terms of what Web2 social media platform is going be best positioned to capture it?
1: I think TikTok is strongly positioned for this space because they have built a creator-centric algorithm from the outset. Almost every other social network out there was based around the concept of friends first. And what that meant was they already had this very strong signal of who you followed, who you were already connected to. And all they had to do was sort content from those people you followed to figure out what to show you. But what that meant was that it was really hard for new creators to grow quickly. And so what instead you saw was that these networks got dominated by old school celebrities, the Kardashians or massive athletes, not people who are actually native to these platforms, but just the most famous people in the world. And uh, I think what that meant was that for new creators, it was really tough to break through. And what TikTok did that was totally different was they built the algorithm around, test and see. They have said they don't understand who you care about. They don't actually know. You probably don't follow very many creators on TikTok for a lot of users compared to the total volume of amazing creators there are on the platform. So instead of saying, oh, we only show you things from people that you already follow, what they said was we'll take any piece of content, we'll show it to 100 people. And if those 100 people really like it, if they watch it for a long time, if they like it, if they save it, if they share it, we're going to show it to more people. And if enough of those thousand people like it will show it to 10,000 and then 100,000 and a million. And what that meant was that even if you were a first-time creator who's never produced a video in your life, if you made something truly interesting, TikTok would find an audience for it and it would distribute it. And that created all of these amazing overnight success stories in the creator economy where people who came out of nowhere suddenly had a million followers because they, they just made things that people truly loved. And I think that meritocracy of content makes TikTok a much better place for creators to grow. And it's why we're seeing every type of brand in the world also chasing it because they realize that, hey, if I don't already have a huge Instagram following, it's going to be hard for me to ever get there. But if I can make something that truly resonates with people on TikTok, I can grow massive overnight. And what I also love about that is that you don't have to have been a career creator, which often means you either needed to be like financed from somebody else or be living a pretty rough existence where you're doing this only as a side hustle. You know, it was people who basically, had trust funds or really nice jobs or for some other financial s- security that they could spend years grinding it out, getting those first thousand followers. But now you could have somebody who has a full-time job who only makes videos in their car after work, but could get to a million followers super quickly. And that means that every type of subculture, every community can get a creator that's built for them. And I think that that's really important when it comes to representation, that we don't just get people who are already pl- privileged and uh, and And people who are already celebrities in the old old world as the most popular creators of this new world.
2: When I think about who's created the most value for creators, I think I naturally gravitate towards who's enabling the deepest level of connection. And I'm biased having worked there, but today that's YouTube. Long form video that capitalizes on the power of sight, sound, and motion. And I think that's just so much more powerful for people to at least, you know, to see someone's face, hear their voice in kind of that long form intimate setting than, you know, just reading someone's writing or engaging with them for sort of shorter periods of time. You know, long-term, I think YouTube does need to be careful. Today, I think it continues to be a gold standard where most creators, if you're trying to make a living, you're building a presence in platforms like a TikTok or a Twitter, where it's easier to kind of bootstrap a community and then trying to migrate that over to YouTube where you can monetize. I think there's, there's been studies, uh, one done by our portfolio company, Carrot, actually, that suggested that it took 25 views on TikTok To equate to one view on YouTube in terms of monetization. So that's the state of where we we live today. Uh, And I think YouTube has the ability to kind of be that, you know, continue to be that gold standard, but time will tell.
1: I mean, I think it's really going to be a combination of those two. I think you're going to see TikTok for growth and YouTube for monetization. The biggest stars on TikTok are trying to then build, you know, move those biggest fans over to YouTube where they can monetize them more directly. But I think you need both of those pieces, plus the third piece, which is truly owning the audience. You know, all of these social networks, you're still mediated. You are still uh, interrupted and and separated from your audience by an algorithm. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of creators are trying Trying to shift to owning their own audience directly using uh, you know, products like Truffle, which is one of our portfolio companies, which allows you to actually build an owned audience of email addresses and phone numbers so that you can distribute your content directly to your fans and nobody else can say, hey, this wasn't good enough. We're not going to show it to people, which is especially important when it comes to creators trying to build auxiliary businesses, because it's all well and good if you're trying to make something that's just purely entertaining. Those algorithms are happy to distribute you. But as soon as you're trying to promote your new business that you created, even if you really earned that opportunity by delighting and entertaining your fans week after week, you know, they still won't show that they will mute those videos and you won't get any viewership for them, even if you have tons of followers on something like TikTok. And so that sense of own distribution, it's better on YouTube where you have more traditional subscribers, but the holy grail is getting those text uh, phone numbers and email addresses so that you can always have a direct line of communication to your fans.
0: One of the Promises, or at least you know, a discussion point on Web three type platforms is that you actually able to own your audiences. The platform isn't rented, um, like it is on you know YouTube or Twitter or or Facebook. You actually can own it, and meaning that when you think about it, as a creator ownership, like like Josh you said, it's the email addresses, it's you know the phone number. That's actually what kind of ownership looks like. I'm wondering as I know they're still very, very early in web three, but how do you think about ownership in the future? Is it is it gonna always be email addresses and phone numbers and like that, really those kind of two forms of communication? If you're able to access that, then you have a quote unquote, you know, own you can kind of measure your audience in that way, um, in terms of how you're doing. Or do you think that it could be something else or or maybe what are some ideas that, that you've seen thrown around?
1: I think to exist as one of those mediums, you have to be largely a, like a protocol or a standard. You can't be a company. You know, it has to be email, not Gmail. It has to be like phone numbers, not Facebook Messenger. Uh, that said, email is largely getting mediated over time as consumption through specific clients gets more centralized. The fact is that Gmail holds a huge percentage of email consumption in the West, and because of that, their foldering and tab system, which says does this go into your primary inbox or like the promotions inbox? Is really, uh, you know, has a huge impact on whether your your messages get seen, and that's why I think actually we're going to shift increasingly to phone numbers and away from email because there the conversion rate, the open rate is outstandingly high compared to even email, and especially compared to old mediums like direct mail or phone numbers or phone calls. And so I think moving towards SMS is probably the safest route for creators thinking about how do they future proof their communication.
2: I agree. I think that's a great place to be uh, if you can get there. To play devil's advocate, I wonder if this idea of owning your audience is overblown in some sense. It's it's true that they are increasingly personality brands that are cross-platform. But if you look at the majority of, of successful creators, they're actually native to a very specific format. Right. And, and it makes sense. Somebody who can be interesting and spontaneous over the course of an eight hour stream may be completely different from someone who could stitch together a really compelling, rehearsed, you know, heavily manicured 10 minute YouTube video. And I remember we did this study at YouTube looking at the, the overlap of Twitch and YouTube success where creators had accounts on both. And they were actually somewhat inversely correlated. So I wonder if for many creators, you
1: may still have a primary home for your community. I think you will have that primary home for your community, but you are always at risk. You always have platform risk. All those creators who thought they were going to be big on Vine or thought they were going to be big on Meerkat, and then suddenly those platforms got ripped out from under them. You know, the companies just decided to pivot and, or, you know, in in Vine's case, Twitter said, oh, we're experiencing a cash crunch. We're going to shut down this thing, even though it was the predecessor to TikTok and they could own the most powerful popular medium of social media in the day right now if they hadn't been so short-sighted. But what you saw there was that the Vine creators who consistently promoted their other platforms saying, hey, I want you to sign up for text or email. I want you to sign up for my YouTube or my Instagram. Those are the ones that when Vine shut down, they survived. They were able to continue operating their business and rebuild their audience elsewhere. The ones that only doubled down on that platform, even if it felt uniquely suited to their creation style, were left marooned ruined when those platforms uh, you know, disbanded. And so I think it's really important to always think about diversification. You don't want to get stuck on one platform because no platform lasts forever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's so many examples of platforms imploding, like Snapchat for business, another example that comes to mind. I think the playbook for most creators, unless you have a certain level of celebrity, is still being written in how you actually cultivate a cross-platform presence. And um, for the health of the ecosystem, I agree. I think that'd be a great place to to get creators.
1: It's also one thing that I always recommend to creators is if you see a new medium that, you know, a new platform that feels well-suited to your creation style, even if there's not that many users there yet, go in and make better content than anybody else. Go above and beyond to be above the bar for what most people are making. And then if that platform starts to grow, you become the default person to follow. Because I always think of it like the way that on Twitter, you know, it's such a mature network that gaining followers on Twitter is really hard. Even if you have a tweet that goes super viral and gets hundreds of thousands of retweets, you still might not get that many followers. Like I've had things that have seen thousands and thousands of retweets and I've got like 10 new followers from it. And that's because people already feel like their feeds are full and they're stingy about following new people. They don't wanna drown out the people that they already follow. But when somebody joins a new social network, it's a green space. They say, oh, I'm not following anyone. I'll follow you and you and you and I'll listen to the suggested user list that they give me when I sign up. And so if you can get in early uh, before all those people join, every single person that joins, you have an opportunity to get a follow out of them. That's a lot easier than trying to get it later when they're already stingy and have their feeds full. And so sometimes this might lead to a loss of, of productivity. Like you pour a bunch of effort and creative, uh, you know, labor into a new platform, and it never truly takes off. But I think you'll learn that within a, a few weeks or months. But if there's something does start to blow up, you know, that little bit of a head start, those weeks or months can translate into millions of followers. I mean, I know that uh, on Twitter, it took me ten years to get to ninety thousand followers, and I got to four million followers on Clubhouse in about four months, simply because. it was growing so fast, I was one of the earliest creators on the platform making like a formal a formal show and by going that above and beyond to put extra labor in and making content that was better than the average, you become that default follow if that network grows.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to bring up Josh as you were talking about this. Your example, um, just as you as you laid it out about what you're able to build um, in Clubhouse, putting a lot more effort when it was a very early platform and actually building out kind of a proper show, one of the first few proper shows on Clubhouse, and being one of the beneficiaries of it, and you know having incredible attendances um, whenever you have a program on Clubhouse. There's been a lot of kind of criticism of Clubhouse, I'd say, in the last you know year or so. What's your point of view about like the future prospects for it?
1: I mean, I still see strong live audiences on on Clubhouse compared to platforms like Instagram Live, TikTok Live, and others. I find that you know people are getting better audiences there, and you know there's definitely been other audio platforms that have sprung up, but they're either usually a direct clone of Clubhouse, where without a native community, or they're an audio feature built into an existing network, where you'll never be the primary use case. Like they'll always be worried about cannibalizing notifications. Of their core product, you know, until people really figure out how to monetize those audio experiences, you know, other networks like Twitter are not going to want to put them first and foremost because it could actually decline their uh, their revenues. Uh, and you know, what I've seen is that Clubhouse is starting to understand the big opportunity around social broadcasting. You know, right now most people think of Clubhouse as being these big flagship shows like my show Press Club. You know, we've had Mark Zuckerberg and the CEOs of Spotify, Shopify, Salesforce, Slack, Patreon, Substack, and all these amazing companies. But that's a fun thing to come in and listen to once or twice a week. But if you want to get to that daily use case, Clubhouse is increasingly building that social functionality so that you can just have that kind of party line where you're talking with a bunch of close friends. You don't have to worry about having a massive audience. It's more about the intimacy and the quality and the closeness to the other people that are in that room with you than it is about getting the most views or the most minutes of listening time. And I think that is really where the future uh, of Clubhouse is, is the ability for you to spend time with your friends that like if you don't want to go out on a Sunday night but you're still awake like that could be the place to gather and hang out with your friends and it's a lot lower lift than being on video with everybody.
0: Do you think that these are gonna be new metrics or when you're kind of looking at a platform that that might be building and maybe looking at metrics about how much people are actually maybe staying on, seen on for um, like the like length of time versus maybe the amount of people that actually are are in the product.
1: Absolutely, and I think the smart networks are building their algorithms around that. Like TikTok understands that you might have a really clickbaity like first image or title for your live stream, but if people are only spending five seconds in that live stream, it's obviously not high quality. And I would love to see things like Twitch and YouTube consider how could they show you what the average viewership time is for a live stream. So you're saying like what percentage of the total live stream have they Watch or how long have they been watching because if you see that like the average person is watching for 20 minutes you're probably like this is really good content versus if this is like something people watch for 15 seconds it might be like cute for a second but probably not that special.
2: That's actually one of the biggest challenges for any platform including YouTube is understanding quality watch time which is to say creators are so sophisticated in ways uh, in how to game the system and there's tons of content out there that's really good at keeping you hooked for some payoff that may or may not come. You know, I think many of these platforms see so much of this, this content that, uh, that disappoints users, even though they get reasonable watch time from a metric standpoint. The, the prevailing wisdom has been to do user studies, collect user feedback and so forth on the quality of the content, but that introduces more user friction. So I think that's still an unsolved problem for many of these platforms.
0: I also wonder too, like when we talk as well about the creator economy and also these communities that have been formed within these Web3 communities, where does venture capital kind of fit into the mix? Now we've seen, you know, Board 8 fundraise and other highly regarded communities. Where do you see venture capital as it relates to these things?
1: I generally think that you know venture capital has to be careful around how they're uh, perceived by their communities. You know, you see this in open source communities as well as in the, the Web three space. You know, the concept of decentralization, there not being some central owner that's kind of steering the, um, the the project or driving it just towards a you know financial return versus you know actual utility for the community. I think is really important. And to that end, I think in Web three, you know, choosing VCs that actually help that have a Robust platform of value ads versus ones that are just giving you money and therefore really are just in it for the financial return and don't really feel like they're ever part of the community. I think is really important. You know, that's how we've built our practice in Web three at SignalFire. You know we were we we started as almost like a tech startup. We asked five hundred founders what they wanted out of a, a VC firm. The number one thing they said was recruiting. So we built that. We you know we recruited a bunch of Stanford AI PhDs and Google veterans to build this thing called Beacon. It crunches a half trillion data points and ranks uh, five hundred million people in the tech ecosystem on skill level and hireability so that we can give these reports to our portfolio companies of the best people who are the most likely to leave their jobs for any type of role. We also have an in-house recruiting team that helps them warm up those leads or do those big searches. Uh, we run 100 events per year for our portfolio companies, bringing them together with experts in any space. We took 85 top business leaders like the Instagram co-founders and YouTube co-founder and turned them into LPs in the funds so they're actually incentivized to help our companies. And we have a bunch of in-house experts. You know, I run our, a PR advisory program based on my time at TechCrunch. We hired the Stripe CMO, uh, Jim Stoneham, to be a full-time operating partner, helping our companies with go to market. We have a whole in-house data science team for building customer gen, uh, and lead gen lists. And you put it together, 85% of our founders say we're their most valuable investor. We have an MPS of 92. When we talk to Web3 firms. They understand that we are really going to help, and it's not just money. Because a lot of these Web3 projects, if they just want money, they can do an NFT sale, and you're seeing that often in the like pre-seed and seed stage, where companies are able to generate those first few million in funding by right from their community. And what I think that means is that VCs have to work harder. They don't. They're not the. the they don't have a monopoly on capital anymore. The community can contribute that capital. So VCs have to evolve to provide real. Tam- tangible value adds. And that's what we've tried to build at SignalFire. So we think that we're going to see the Web3 ecosystem actually accelerate the shift towards true value add smart money VCs versus just people piling in in as much cash as they can, but not actually getting involved with the company.
2: Yeah, I think what you're seeing is in Web3, once you find product market fit as a company, the inflection points are just so much more aggressive. And you have to company build in a way that, that stays lockstep with that demand. And so I've often thought that you know starting a company in Web3 is is kind of like founding a company on like extra hard or impossible mode in, in many ways. And I think to Josh's point, it underscores the importance of having a VC who understands your business
0: and can actually help you prepare for scale. That's helpful. I mean, as you say, capital, it's a commodity. I mean, if you just need capital, you can raise it as well as an NFT or from tokens and from people that are actually um, in your community already or or issuing it to, to new members of your community. So there has to be some some type of differentiation there. How do you think about as well like the current state of the NFT market?
1: Yeah, I think what you're seeing is this shift away from the like pure, like cutesy PFP world that we really saw exploding with tons of derivatives, you know, whether it was the originals like CryptoPunks and then later things like MeBits and, and Board Apes, and then you know, newer projects that have gotten popular, like Doodles and Goblin Town and Moonbirds. You know, those are cute, they're fun, and, but the best ones are actually unlocking access to a community. And I think that the utility is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the NFT world. It's not just about something cute to show off in like your Twitter program profile, it's the access to a community, access to IRL events, access to cool software experiences or virtual worlds or even metaverses and the access to this fellow community where people actually help each other, where they share alpha, alpha uh, you know, and investing tips uh, or great new opportunities or, you know, uh, or new startups that are emerging. I think that's where the NFT market is fo- is moving and you're going to see less and less of these super quick, very thin, like no roadmap cash grabs and instead the projects that are growing popular are usually going to be what the ones that provide a ton of utility with the occasional one that's really just a big joke and is almost making fun of and parodying the desire for like a deeper experience and being just truly art. So I think that's where you'll see the the, uh, the market bifurcate. You'll have, you know, this, these pure art, really silly, fun, kind of crazy things on one end. And then you will have these really deep, almost like membership communities that are just replacing a traditional membership fee and application process with purchasing an NFT or being early to the community. And I think that that's fine. What we want to get rid of is that middle ground where it was really just felt like people doing things because they were they saw somebody else do it and thought they could make a quick million bucks. That's not good for the ecosystem. It ends up rugging a lot of consumers. That's how people feel like they always lose money in the NFT world. And that sours future buyers. And so I think us getting rid of that part of the market through this bear market cycle has actually been positive for the NFT scene. And while like sales volume is down as well as just total dollars transacted is down, I think some of these communities are taking this crypto winter as time to reapply the funding that they've already generated through their early NFT drops to build real utility and become long lasting brands.
2: We probably all saw the reports of OpenSea transactions falling by 95%. When we disaggregated that data, the broader NFT data into transaction volume versus transaction value, it was actually mostly driven by the latter. Meaning the actual number of trades and buyers and sellers didn't fall as precipitously as as the price. So hopefully that's some indication that while prices have crashed, the real NFT enthusiasts are going to are still here and are going to persist through the cycle.
1: I mean, you see things like you see boom and bust cycles in a lot of collectibles, but you know we're still collecting baseball cards and stamps and comic books and you know more recently like old school video games. You know there's a huge just innate natural desire for people to own at collectibles and feel like it, whether it's a piece of nostalgia, whether it's speculation or it's just owning a piece of like traditional culture, people want to be part of that. And as we spend more and more of our time online instead of offline, it makes sense that those you know, those mementos, those status symbols are going to move online. Like we spend so much of our time in, in, in the real in the internet world. But before NFTs, there wasn't really a way to denote status. Like in the real world, you can drive your Bentley, you can wear your Prada, you know, uh, but you, you didn't really have a way of doing that online. And NFTs are giving people some of that and sure some of it is like thin status signaling. But similarly, you know, you start with something that feels like just a status symbol, but eventually you are getting like real Lamborghinis like real like, you know, things with real utility that are actually incredible pieces of engineering and science. And I think we'll see that start to happen more and more in the NFT world as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's as you say, like, it's the same human behavior right um it's just the only difference is that instead of it being you know in the physical world it's you know in the digital world and but we're spending so much time in the digital world that we actually we actually kind of want to take things that we actually own in the physical world and actually move them over there which makes a lot of sense how do you think about currently i mean i mean speaking about the market what is the current state of venture capital in your mind
1: Overall, I'll say that I think you know the the explosion of capital invested last year, you know, we went from like two hundred and ninety billion to about six. $120 billion invested from VC in 2021, even though we're in this market that is moving a little bit down. What I think that really taught uh, founders was that if you are building a high quality company, you've got a great team in an exciting underserved market and with an innovative approach that you can raise capital and instead you get to choose your investors. We're not in that same era where it was all about, you know, the investors have the, all the power and they get to, you know, dole out yeses and as they like, but we're finding finding is that, you know, there's been so much more money in the system now that they're all fighting for that allocation in those best companies. And the way that they're fighting for it is through value add. And so what I see the future of venture capital looking like is solo GP funds with a very cost effective, like small, narrow value add. You look at something like Packy McCormick and his not Boring capital. You know, he runs this huge newsletter, not boring hundreds of thousands of subscribers, and he can give distribution help to his portfolio companies. And just that inclusion in one of his emails is probably worth them making room for a small check from his fund. And so I think you're going to see those kind of smaller, uh, you know, either scalable or sorry, cost-effective value adds or ones where it's solo GPs in a very specific market where they are experts, where they're just doing blockchain gaming, where a blockchain gaming fund, I used to work at the biggest blockchain gaming companies, I helped build them. And now I'm uh, running this fund to invest in them, where it becomes a very kind of a no-brainer that you want somebody who's been in this space before who has that deep, deep experience that a big general SVC firm doesn't have. So you'll see that on one side from the solo GPs and the smaller funds, and on the other side, you'll see these bigger institutional funds Pouring a lot of money into building really big, scalable value ads that have an economy of scale, like we did with our beacon recruiting technology. Like, no single startup would pay to have this engineering team working for seven years to build this recruiting engine just to help them with their own internal recruiting. But because we get to apply that across, you know, 100 plus portfolio companies, it makes it cost effective for us. And it gives us a real story to tell when we're asking why people should give us that allocation. And so I think you're going to see that as the, the shift of venture capital and that messy middle where it's like mid-sized generalist funds that don't have very tangible value adds and don't have very deep experience in one specific sector, I think they're going to have a harder time in this next era.
2: I think that's very well said on the long-term uh, outlook for venture capital. I think in the very near term, you know, we probably all heard enough VC doomsday tweets, but when you dig deeper, it's actually a, sort of a tale of two cities. right? In the growth world, especially pre-IPO stage, the markets, you know, they we all know they've been obliterated. But at the seed stage, you know, great founders continue raising, albeit perhaps at, you know, say 20% or so lower valuations, um, you know, from, from VCs. And, you know, overall, while we're in the most challenging fundraise environment in, in a decade, you know, I think that this is um, this is going to be a healthy normalization or reset back to fundamentals, where especially at the growth stages, we got carried away with gargantuan funds deploying easy money. Um, And at the same time, even though fundraising is getting harder, a lot of things get easier for many startups, including recruiting, not having to cut through the noise of, you know, a dozen other copycat competitors and, and a number of other critical, critical dimensions.
1: Yeah, I mean it helps that you know those fang companies aren't paying those ridiculous ridiculous salaries as often anymore. They're not hiring at the same pace. You're not competing with these very cash rich companies anymore, which can mean that your average salary for an engineer goes down. So even though you might be able to let or raise less money, that money goes further in this era. And so I think especially if you're a newer VC getting started and investing right now, starting at the bottom of the market, that's a great time to start. And I think the biggest problem will be for those funds who deployed tons of super huge rounds with low diligence, just trying to be the fastest term sheet You know, late, late last year, and then now are seeing the multiple compression of the public company comps come down so much that it's really hard for any, uh, any of those companies to justify those same valuations anymore.
0: I appreciate your thoughts. I mean, it's so what it seems like in the world of VC, we're going to have these small, more specialized funds, and then we're going to have the large funds that actually do have the, the ability to really create these scalable kind of platforms for their actual portfolio companies and are actually able to be maybe more generalist per se. Um, and so it's really like the funds that are more kind of stuck in the middle that are going to have a hard time going, moving forward. What's one book that's inspired each of you personally and one book that's inspired each of you professionally?
2: for me the banality of evil really impacted me on a personal level it's sort of demystifying the psychology of evil that it's it's not what you see in the movies but rather the indifference of the masses of otherwise ordinary people you know that can enable some of history's greatest catastrophes and then professionally you know i'd say um the emotional dog and its rational tail is a, is a great one because it explains so much of our behavior and decision making especially in the absence of perfect information like you have in vc you know, I think reasoning is so often kind of post hoc constructed to justify kind of uh, you know, automatic emotional responses that you feel in the moment. And uh, there's, there's certainly plenty of opportunity for emotion uh, in venture when it comes to, you know, having to make um, judgments on founders or the mission of the company, its impact on the world or, you know, the investment process itself. Um, and so I think really doing truth seeking well in large groups is, is hard.
1: Yeah, on my side. I'll say personally, uh, the Three Body Problem series—just incredible science fiction, totally mind-bending. Crosses you know hundreds of thousands of years during its story, and really the willingness to just completely open one's mind and use that kind of personal, off-professional time as a way to get away from that, like you know, your calendar and your email and your task list, and just fully open your mind. I think that is really important, especially for anybody in the technology world if you want to be able to see those opportunities coming, if you want to like have what we call luck, which I really think is just seeing an opportunity, saying it could be me and having the bravery to kind of seize it. You know, I think the three body problems, willingness to think incredibly large uh, and on this huge time scale really helps you break open your brain in that way. And then when it comes to the professional world, AI superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee, just incredible, incredible book breaking down why the AI revolution and automation and robotics will not be like the industrial revolution revolution, why we are poised to see massive job loss uh, due to automation and AI, and how America versus China in the war for AI will play out, whether that's through you know, AI colonialism, where you know, big companies or big countries give AI to smaller countries in exchange for access to their data to improve those algorithms and models, uh, as well as the way that creativity you know, in versus quantity and how you know, America's consistent uh, ability to build creative new technologies is really critical. We might be doing the best research here, but that in China, there's the pure volume of people who are really focusing on these issues and doing scientific research at scale means that they still may be able to outpace us. And so I think really understanding what automation means for the society and what the repercussions will be is very important, especially if you're investing in these same technologies, being able to safeguard society from some of the negative repercussions of them is really important for any investor to be thinking about.
0: Wow, I appreciate you sharing these four books and also your, your your explanations for them. Both of you are super original. These four books, no one's ever brought up before. So I'm really excited to add them to my uh, book list. Thank you both, Wayne and, and Josh, for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us totally my pleasure and if you're building something out there that's you know in the in the world of infrastructure or health tech e-commerce devops web3 creator economy and you're looking for a strong seed to series b lead investor who really gets down and dirty and helps you uh, and has an MPS of 92 and you want to find out why founders love us please pitch signal fire we'd love to hear what you're building
0: and there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Wayne and Josh. I highly recommend following them on Twitter at WayneJWHU. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.